Hello, everybody. This is Shane Douglas Keene, and I'm here with Rich Duncan, and we are here talking to Laird Barron today. Um, we have a lot of stuff to talk to him about, but uh, just for a little intro, he's written things like the uh, the Imago Sequence Collection, Occultation, Swift to Chase, his most recent crime novels, which we're going to talk a lot about. Uh, Black Mountain and uh, Blood Standard, which I just named out of order. They go the other way. Um, and uh, I've been a fan ever since Imago sequenced Laird. So probably all the way back to what? what is that, 2006, 8-ish, 7-ish? Uh, 2007, and thank you guys for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, it's good to have you here too, man. Uh um, uh, okay. Um, I'll just dive right in with this. Um, you've written a lot of uh, cosmic horror, a lot of pulpy cosmic hor horror noir, I think, of, of it, really. And now just straight up pulp noir. And that's kind of one of the things we want to focus a lot on is the relationships between those two things. Yeah, I did... Um a lot of, you know, I wrote a lot of cosmic horror uh, back in the day, uh, you know, starting in, um, we're talking about publishing around 2000. Was, my first story was, uh, it was kind of a send up of the, of the Lovecraft genre mixed with like James Bond's, you know, spy thriller kind of a thing. So, so Fleming and Lovecraft and it, I sold it to, um, three lobed burning eye, which, uh, is a small, semi-pro zine that I'm not really sure how often uh, you know, as Andrew Fuller runs that I'm not sure how often it publishes it used to be a couple times a year, three times a year or something like that, I know it's still going anyway, that was my first it wasn't a pro sale um, it was you know, it was like for five bucks or something like that but that was the first you know, time that I had something that was sort of out there uh, you know, in front of people and it was, like I said, it was sort of a, I won't say a parody, but pretty close to a parody. It was almost like a comic, a comical kind of a, a story with a lot of serious overtones. And then uh, in 2001, I got my first pro sale with Fantasy, the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, uh, with a, a definitely, it's a, you know, straight up uh, cosmic horror story called Shiva, Open Your Eye. And, I remember that story. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's not really even... It's kind of funny. Uh, the the first story, uh, Hour of the Cyclops, is a story. It contains characters, and there's a first, second, and third act, even though it's only about five thousand words. It's you know very traditional in structure. Uh, everything is very much grounded in the rules of literature, uh, or, or you know of, of genre literature. You know nothing, even though it deals with cosmic horror. It's you know it's pretty. I would say pretty pedestrian in some ways, but. Um, Shiva was and is is different. You know, it's it's almost plotless, and it takes a hard right turn about halfway through the story. It starts off as a detective, you know, kind of a cat and mouse game between what you think maybe an old serial killer and a detective investigating him, and it takes a hard right turn uh, in the middle of the story. And uh, you know, I haven't written a ton of stories quite like that since. You know, a lot of my stories are. Um, you know, they'll have a traditional backbone and then I'll inject or infuse the story with more surreal or um, outre elements. And 
you know, and, and I really, I really enjoy, I really enjoy doing that. But every now and then I'll let loose with something that's just sort of a stream of consciousness, uh, uh, you know, kind of an homage to, to sort of this, this, this influence that's always bubbling, you know, in the, uh, under the surface for, and kind of, and kind of, uh, sort of motivating, kind of like this hidden motive force to a lot of right. my, to a lot right. of my writing. I mean, even when I'm writing about something really um, mundane uh, or, or very traditional, I have to admit uh, the, the influence of, of the cosmic, and not necessarily horror, just cosmic, is always, I'm always kind of holding it back. Um, and, but yet, it's it's right there. You can kind of feel the vibe all the time. Even even with the Coleridge novels, there's a kind of a little bit of a cosmic vibration going on there. <laughs> well, when you get a load of the third one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's kind of what I... That story and Blackwood's Baby really are where my brain formed the uh, the term pulpy cosmic horror noir was Shiva and Blackwood's baby and stories like that, that, you know, just really kind of had a crime-ish vibe to them. Well, but, I grew, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's pretty much what I was going to say. <laughs> well, th- th- my response to that is just, um, I was thinking about this, somebody was asking me, it was an interview, a recent interview I did, and I read a lot of um, well, everything growing up. We had, we didn't, <coughs> pardon me, we didn't have a lot, but we had books and we had, you know, everything from the Grimm's, like the actual, you know, the old school Grimm's fairy tales with the Snow White, you know, burning her her, her stepmother alive at the end or, or making her dance in white hot, heated up iron shoes, to uh, Barbara Cartland, to Louis L'Amour, to Elmore Leonard, to uh, her, uh, Hessa to uh, I mean you name it Harold Robbins this is this vast this vast um, sort of spectrum of uh, of writing and so I didn't really form any prejudices outside of you know some things as I grew older certain things appealed to me as I as I matured more than others but I I never really started out with the idea of oh this is romance that's for girls or uh, oh, this is too. This is too intelligent, you know. Or this is literary stuff. I don't. I don't want to read that. Or uh, I liked everything because we didn't have a lot else to do. I could either write uh, or read, and so I did a lot of both. And you'll see that in my writing. I, I'm. There's plenty of writers today that are 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 more than worthy of emulation and inspiration. I. I do get a lot of inspiration from people like Laval and Stephen Graham Jones and John Lang and, and Livia Llewellyn. But what shows up in my writing, just simply due to reading this stuff you know, in my formative years, is you're going to see more John D. McDonald and you're going to see Harold Robbins and you're going to see Clavel and you're going to see Martin Cruz Smith. You know, I read Gorky Park when it first came out. Uh, that was a te- you know early teens. Uh, I read... Um, I think Elmore Leonard, I read, um, and, and, and the funny thing is I read a lot of authors whom I don't, I didn't, I don't remember reading them, but then I'll pick up a book today and go, oh, wait a minute, I read this. And what I realized is that when I was a kid, the author didn't matter to me. These days, I don't pick up anything without, oh, I wonder who this is, glancing at the back, oh, okay, this is their bio, 
oh yeah, what are, what are some other books they've done? You know, it's the instant access on the internet, you know everything. Um, it, it's just like a, a habit these days to, to know kind of everything about an author before you even start reading their material. Well, when I was a kid, there were some obvious authors that I really, I like, like Robert E. Howard, you know, I knew when I was reading a Howard, I paid attention to that shit. But a lot of times I would just pick up a book and read it. And I, I got to tell you, I think this is a, I want to say it's a lost art or skill or, or, but it's definitely a lost experience. I think it does something to your formative mind, uh, you know, uh, basically just to read as a child and to read the way a child reads. And I carried that into my teen years uh, where I didn't really care who wrote it. I just, I would just read it. And I don't know. I think in some ways it's, it, it's possible that that's limiting that my, that my influences are all, uh, pre-1990 probably, you know, in general, but I think it also, it, it imbues my work with something that's not really as prevalent these days. I think there's a, a sort of a retro or throwback quality to my work that is not affected, that it's just part of my DNA. Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting point you made about how when you were younger, how you would read books, because once you said that, I never really noticed it until just now. But I kind of did the same thing. Like I would just go into the library and it wasn't even, you know, whereas now I kind of may know what I like. I still read kind of outside of, you know, horror and crime, which are my two biggest ones. But when I was a kid, like that didn't even factor into it. It was more like I just grabbed something and checked it out. And like you said, I think that's something that's lost. And like, even when I was younger, you know, it helped inspire me. Like I would jot all kinds of different stories. And yeah, I was, when you said that, I could definitely relate to that. We become more prejudicial, and and this is certainly not unique to to me or anybody else. I think this is just what, what goes on. I've just noticed it. You know, I'm uh, maybe I'll, I don't know how old you are, but I'm sure Shane is probably in my boat. We kind of live in that world where this is this twilight where I remember eight track tapes and I remember vinyl, <laughs> right? I mean, and vinyl is pretty much all you have. And I grew up with a black and white TV that you could put your palm across it. For, for, from the time I was about 10 until I was about 14 or 15. Man, and I, rabbit ears, right? Rabbit ears and all that. And But I'm also, you know, and I'm not a tech a tech guy, but I understand how to operate modern technology. And so there's, and I appreciate it. You know, I, I never allowed myself to become ossified or calcified and, well, things were so much better in the 70s when men wore <laughs> sideburns and, uh, you know, women wore yeah. go-go skirts or whatever. You know, I see I see that a lot uh, in writers, uh, and I always think it's a mistake. You know, you're in your 50s or 60s, and you're basically talking about how toys weren't toys unless it was a BB gun or a wooden block. And I'm like, you know, I <laughs> yeah, you're either. putting that like a codger stamp on yourself doing that shit. Yeah, I. You know what? I'm gonna share with you guys this real brief experience. I was working at Home Depot many, 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 many years ago, and. Um, I'm loading somebody's vehicle, customer's vehicle, and it was this very, very old man. Like he was like bent, and he had, he had, he had, as my dad would say, been ridden hard and put up wet. I mean, he looked like he had had seen life and uh, been punched in the face by it a few times. And he's just standing there, you know. And it's the whole thing about making assumptions about people. Well, he started singing a pop song that was somebody drove by and they had their truck window down, and it was. Um, by some pop band 
like stained. It was I uh, on the outside. I'm on the outside. I'm looking in. He started singing that in the most melodious, beautiful pitch, timber. <laughs> and he just he sang like the whole stanza. And it was just it, it was it actually it was stunning because of who it was coming from. But it was also just beautifully done. And then he just sort of glanced at me with his watery, like one eye wasn't working, like which I empathize with, and the other one was not too far behind that one. And he just kind of folds himself in his car, his old rattle trap jalopy, and he, he just sort of, you know, putters off in the distance. But I said to myself, you know, that's who, as a writer, that's who I need to be. I need to be. Because that song is, was being sung by, you know, 20-somethings, uh, enjoyed by 20-somethings. And so I... I took that to heart. That was that's one of those little things I folded up and I put it in my pocket and said, "That guy is still alive. He is still and he's still living in the present. You know, he's he's not he hasn't sealed himself, you know, in a in a buckyball somewhere and is you know trying to basically you know live in the 50s or wherever his peak period, uh, his golden years were, excuse me, his golden age." Yeah, and that's kind of like my dad kind of lives in that. You know, well back in my day we walked to school uphill four miles and uphill five miles coming home you know and um and you know and things were better when you know and so yeah there's i think it's important as writers and a lot of writers don't like you say to um to be a lot more open about uh what you're receptive to and what you're not receptive to and what you're willing to accept as far as changes go and you know, what you're willing to roll with, so to speak. I grew up, uh, you know, I filled up box after box of completed and mostly semi-completed manuscripts from the time I was, you know, six, six, seven years old until uh, 16 or 17. I, mean, I wrote a lot of words. I, I would estimate approaching a million words, and I did it with a pencil. And I did it both sides of the line, piece of paper, napkins, whatever we had. We didn't always always have paper, uh, you know, fresh paper. And so that's how I that's how I basically that was my sort of uh, internship into being a writer, or at least my formative years of being a writer. You know what? I really like my computer, and I like my. I'm not a typist, but I sure enjoy uh, the the amount of work now that I can get done you know, uh, with a keyboard and not having to actually literally cut with scissors and paste and rearrange things, but, but actually move things around. And so I feel like technology, the internet for all the bad things, uh, it's made my career a lot more possible. So I, I embrace all of this stuff. I just think you take the good, take the good things, uh, and you, and you fuse them together. You know, I, I have to worry about falling to that rut of, because things were tough when I was a kid, and I th- and I think there was some honor in some of the the struggles that I had. But I think you have to keep in mind that um, you, you keep pieces of that, and you and you and you mix it up with uh, or paste it to the sort of the mosaic of your current life. And you you know it's an ongoing thing. Life didn't stop when I was uh, thirty, uh, when I was in my heyday. It's 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 <laughs> for better or for worse, it's continuing. And I think as a creator. Uh, you know, if you're, you're trying to immerse people in your material and you need to be able to, if you're going to write convincingly about things that are happening to people outside your peer group, especially, uh, you, you need to be at least somewhat current on what, what what's happening outside that bubble. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I I agree. That's that's important because you have to be able to relate to whatever whatever group you happen to be directing. And with your stuff, you're kind of it's not really directed at a particular age group or anything. It's something you want to kind of appeal to everyone. Right. Um, and you pull that off well. But I mean, you also inject a lot of yourself into into what you're writing, um, and I think that's to the benefit of your writing. You know, uh, it's... Oh, go ahead. No, I go ahead. No, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I don't... I have written about a lot of people who are either objectively or strongly subjectively not kind of people that that I really like. Yeah. Uh, or, that, or there are light, or that should be uh, light. And so it, it is tough. You know, I grew up subsistence hunting, and I'm no great hunter or anything like that, but we, we shot animals to survive. And um, I don't really have any problem with, with, with people who are living in a place where they have to live off the land. If that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. But that said, it would be very easy because I do inject, you know, kind of my, my I have a worldview and a perspective. And it would be very easy to go to read Blackwood's Baby and think that I'm pro big game hunting because I think Luke Honey is a fairly, I write him as a sympathetic character. Uh, but I could not be more, uh, you know, I couldn't be more against trophy hunting or sport hunting. Uh, I don't think it's possible unless I were, you know, over in Africa working with the park rangers. I mean, the bottom line is I, I loathe it. And so it's, I do, I do kind of feel like I'm always walking this razor, this razor's edge because I don't want to be an apologist for bad behavior. I just, I've known a lot of people who, including trophy hunters who, who go over to Africa and, and slaughter animals. I've known them. Uh, I've known criminals of all kinds. Uh, and I've known you know, a lot of good people. And I just, I write about things I've seen. And I write about things that I can not necessarily empathize with, but, or excuse me, sympathize with, but empathize with. Like I understand, ah, uh, this is why you do what you do. And, you know, I, I think on one hand, it's probably very entertaining. Or I hope it's entertaining because you get immersed. But I also, you know, worry about being, um, you know, seeming like I'm apologizing for the worst behavior. And uh, I just kind of have to live with, you know, people's reactions to that. I don't, you know, I, I, I made my bed, so to speak, and I kind of have to kind of have to deal with it. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I kind of came from, it sounds like, pretty much the same place. And... Uh, it's kind of like you talk about like the, the trophy hunting and stuff and how, I mean, I grew up with hunters. I have no issue with hunting. We hunted, like you say, just to just, you know, cause we needed to hunt. Um, and the, all of those guys were like you, they, they were dead set against trophy hunting, you know? Um, but what I, what I'm kind of roundabout leading to without getting there very intelligently is that you have kind of a, an iconic scene about that very thing in uh, the in uh, Blood Standard. Right. You know, so that kind of knew that about you. Um, actually, I kind of like know way too much about you because I'm a Laird Baron fanboy. And <laughs> but that that's where I was getting at. Um, a lot of yourself is is um coleridge himself he seems to reflect a lot of your own 
your own experiences, you know. Coleridge is a, I don't want to say unique to my thinking, as a, or excuse me, a unique character, because he really is a, a sort of a synthesis of all the tough guys and, and uh, the, the occasional Jessica Mace that gets tossed in there. I feel like I've kind of, you know, I've written so many different types of tough guys from weeping Yakuza gunmen to uh, fairly, you know, highly, highly educated Pinkertons uh, and, and thugs, you know, people in between. And so he's kind of like the best that I know how to do that type of character. You know, you, you, he doesn't embody all of them, but he's just sort of like, OK, I think I know how to do this kind of a character. Uh, the reason that there's so much of me in him is because even though I would say that my career has been primarily as a a writer of crime and mystery and thriller who injects horror into it, and I'm not rejecting horror. I'm just saying that if, like, if somebody wants to call me a horror writer, that's, all, that's great. I have no problem with that. But I do think, practically speaking, if you were to break it down like ingredients for a cake, there's far more, in general, there's far more crime or noir ingredients in my typical story than there are horror uh, ingredients. The horror ingredients have a tendency to be the, ha ha, now you're in trouble. And this is, it's even worse than you thought. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the Coleridge novel, Blood Standard, it's kind of a complicated, even though it's a simple novel, it's very complicated because of what, a, what the tightrope I'm walking. I'm, I was trying to write a commercial novel but one that still paid heed to that I could live with essentially later that paid heed to craft that there's at least some literary ambition to it, even if it's not a literary crime novel, because I didn't, I certainly didn't want to write a, that wasn't the goal uh, to write a, a literary crime novel like Pelicano or somebody like that. Uh, it was more, no, this is commercial. I want to, I want to get a larger audience if possible, but I also want it to be, tight, well done, uh, th th more than, you know, that basically a, a broader audience could read it, but so could, uh, but so could some of my, my former, you know, my, my horror fans might, who enjoy the literary aspects might still be able to get on board with it. And it's tougher than it seems. It's tough to write. My hat's off to people who make the beach read, look, especially the people who do it, who, who do it so well. Uh, it's, it's harder than it seems. It's so easy to mock them, uh, I see it all the time. It, it, it's a talent. It's a skill, and and so it's something I'm still learning. And so when I when I wrote when I wrote Blood Standard, the safest thing for me to do so that I could concentrate on certain elements without worrying about every detail uh, is I said, well, I'm from Alaska. He can be from Alaska. Uh, th that inciting incident about the walrus slaughter. That's something that happened up there and horrified everybody years and years ago. I thought, you know what? This will this will be his inciting incident. I had just moved to New York State. I'm like, so in other words, I was able to on the superficial stuff, the fish out of water kind of stuff. I was like, you know what? I'm exploring the area and learning it. This will be way easier to write it from the point of view of someone who doesn't know that it's not going to the beach, it's going to the shore, you know, that kind of stuff. In other words, I'm not I'm not trying to like create a character who's an old hardcore New Yorker and should know should know all this stuff. I, 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 so I made it a little bit easier on myself. And now as the series goes on, my experiences and Coleridge experiences are, you know, I'm standing on my little ice floor and I'm, or he's on his, and I'm watching him drift out, you know, and I'm, by the time where uh, you guys read the third one, you know, he's this little speck out there. There's not much left of, of, of my influence on him. 
Uh, but it, I, go oh, ahead, go Rich. Ahead. No. I was just going to say uh, one of the things that I jotted down, I mean, you already touched on kind of why is that I liked about these novels, which, by the way, I think you did a great job of kind of combining the literary and commercial because actually Blood Standard is what got me into your books. Like I'm relatively new to your work, but I read that one and I just devoured it. But I thought that that book was unique because, like you said, a lot of times with crime and stuff, if it's set in New York, people automatically think, you know, New York City. And I'm a recent, well, not recent, but uh, I didn't grow up here, transplant to New York State. And I drive around it for work. And there's so many different, you know, locales and types of people that I like that this book kind of ventures into some of those instead of, you know, just, oh, it's going to be New York City. It kind right. of explores these different pockets. And that stuff always appeals to me, like these different regional, you know, type of stories where you see not just what everyone expects, but, you know, towns and stuff that may be a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah, I'm trying to do with, you know, I've been here seven years now. Actually, eight, it'll be eight. Uh, in a, uh, this time, about three weeks from now, I've been here eight years. And I'm trying to do with this area that I'm up in, um, I can look out the window and see the Catskills. So I'm okay. about, two, uh, about two hours north of New York City, uh, and a little bit north of a town called New Paltz. It's a pretty popular university town. And Kingston is just a tiny bit north of, of where I am. And I look out my window and there's the Catskills. Uh, there are fields of corn. There's a dairy farm. So it's 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 country, but not hardcore rural. It's more just like a little farming community. And um, it's very it's very sedate, very nice. And I just said to myself, and it is kind of to my detriment, a tiny bit. Uh, Foreign, you know, foreign buyers, you know, uh, or overseas buyers like they, they like stories set in New York City, L.A. Uh, those are the two big ones uh, over here. And so, yeah, setting setting Coleridge's adventures primarily in the in the small towns and in the countryside. I think from the standpoint of for, for the reader's sake and for my sake as a writer, it's, it's wonderful. It's a lot of fun. And it is. It's unexpected. Uh if I want to do myself a favor, I would probably, you know, relocate him to New York City, you know, financially. It might be better for me, but I don't have any intention of doing that. I, he, as the series goes on, he'll travel more. He goes to, um, but once again, you know, I had him going to these out-of-the-way places, but I certainly have yes. it on my list that if the series progresses far enough, he'll, you know, he'll go over, he'll go overseas, you know, to some big, big, big cities and stuff. But there's actually an illusion in this third book. Because we don't know a lot about what happened during those 20 years that he he was a you know an enforcer for the mafia, except that he wore a suit and he was sent around to do things. And I've kind of developed in the third one that well he you know one of his contacts is a um, ex diplomat uh, you know a, a basically a Jap you know a, a liaison from the Japanese government uh, you know, to the United States government. And he's like how'd you meet him? He's oh I want outfit sent me to Tokyo years ago to do something, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, he, yeah. he's got a bigger background. He's, he's actually very, uh, I won't say highly educated, but he has an education. He, and he certainly has an education about, you know, what suit to wear and, and, and generally how to not, he's not just a run of the mill thug. He was sort of an emissary, uh, in some, in, to some degree. 
And so I, I kind of keep that close to my, my vest just for various reasons, but I, I kind of like the idea that, you know, he's choosing to live in these, um, that basically his, his, his heart lies in the heart, you know, and, and kind of in the rural and in the wilderness, wilderness settings. And, you know, New York, New York state has plenty of that. Uh, you're, you're never very far away from the woods and conversely, and you're in the woods, you're not that far away from a, you know, from a set, from a town, a large town. So it's, it's a really yeah. unique place for me. It's way different than Alaska. It's way different than, uh, I was in Washington state for many years and it's, New York State has, is its own it's its own um, geography. Even though it has similarities to other places, it, it really is uh, special. And I'm I feel like I'm uh, you know eight years is just barely scratching the surface. I, I I'm gonna have to be here a lot longer to really take full advantage of all it has to offer, especially uh, when it comes to literature and and, and inspiration. Yeah, I. Like you said, it is definitely its own geography. I don't know if you've ever been out this way, but I live up near Lake Ontario, halfway between Syracuse and Rochester. And I kind my community's kind of the same as yours, you know, it's tons of farms and like orchards, but within, you know, forty five minutes you're in a big city, whether it be Syracuse or Rochester. So but uh and two about Coleridge. I definitely kind of picked up on what you were saying about him being kind of different. You know, he has those, you know, street smarts and stuff like what types of suits to wear and how to interact. But there's like literary references and certain things that he enjoys and says that, you know, hint that, you know, he's not just that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, that's something that I had was going to kind of touch on too is he, he seems to be like a mashup of archetypes sort of yes and what's interesting is you know when i first started i never knew if there'd be a second book and then i you know was picked up by putnam sarah menick uh is my editor wonderful editor she edits uh i believe Stuart woods david joy she was editing. She, I think she's been uh, Steve Hamilton's editor off and on in the past. So, I mean, she's really – I'm really lucky. Um, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She understands – I mean, she, she, she understands commercial, like just hardcore, brutal commercial fiction. And she also understands – oh, J. Todd Scott. Oh, my God. You guys got to read him. Uh, and she understands highly literary work. And so she, she gets what I'm doing and uh, or trying to do. You know, she 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 very much um, sees me for who I am as a writer. At least that's what it seems like. And I, I got to tell you, that's especially working with a commercial publisher. That's you know, I feel I feel fortunate. But um, yeah, I just uh, he is a mashup. But when I sold the second book, uh, you know, Black Mountain, I always intended to write about. Okay, Coleridge goes after a the Croatoan, the serial killer. Uh, but I didn't really know what it would look like. I just knew the basic framework of it. I wanted to incorporate the, the so-called Borscht Belt, you know, all the old dirty dancing style um, uh, resorts that, you know, are still littering the landscape in the Catskills, all these old crumbling, haunted, essentially haunted houses out there. 
And uh, as it turns out, that didn't that became important, but I didn't really explore it. I mean, it's funny, your plan never survives contact with, uh, with reality. But um, it became more horrific. It became, and not just more horrific, but also more occult. There was certain occult or super science elements, uh, which I always intended to have floating around the background, but not necessarily to be as overt as they became in the second one. And essentially what happened is my dog got sick and uh, she had been with me for many years. And so I'm sitting down to write that in 2017. I'm like, all right, I got plenty of time and then she started having seizures and uh required my you know luckily I work from home but I had to stop everything for about a month and just 24 7 taking care of her and then she got better but she was never quite the same and I, I got an extension Sarah gave me an extension of three months so instead of finishing the novel in October I was able to finish it in January but to be honest it would have you know I probably could have used an extension till the middle of, of 2018 to finish it just because I was so emotionally kind of just racked. Everything I had in me, you know, went into taking care of her. But what yeah. happened now, this is, you know, this is a sort of an interesting thing that happened. I learned something about myself is whatever's going on with me uh, emotionally, you know, in my private life, the only effect it possibly will have on the writing negatively is that it you know maybe it takes me longer to do something like in this case you know I lost not only that it was a month I lost really a couple months uh, after she recovered she never really recovered but the quality of the work was uh, as far as I'm concerned unaffected and in some ways maybe even better than the first one from my opinion on a right on a sentence level but it changed now this is you know and this is neither a good nor bad thing this is just something that happened because I didn't have as much of an emotional uh, reservoir to channel into my work, I, I didn't I didn't have the emotional or creative, uh, you know, intellectual strength to lift all that weight to basically say, well, I'm going to restrain myself because you know it's an active effort for me to say I'm just going to not inject supernatural elements. That's what I'm so used to doing. I actually said, nope, I'm going to lean on. I'm not going to allow it to become supernatural, but I'm definitely going to lean on my what I do well, because I do it automatically. It's just so easy for me. And so it became a little more harrowing than I had initially intended. And so then I was like, well, see what the agent thinks. And my agent, Janet, read it, liked it. And then she passed it on to uh, my editor. And that's, you know, that's your big test. And I was fully bracing for, well, Larry, it's so different from the first one. I'm not sure. No, she loved it. And I didn't change anything except just your typical, you know, the typical process you go through to revise anything. And uh, and then the next test was, well, you know, but what are people going to say? Well, the reality of it was that people liked it far more. And it goes back to, you know, the mashup thing. They're like, you know, essentially this is if, if you know, more Bram Stoker mixed with Travis McGee or it's, you know, it's some other horror, you know, it's some other horror uh, sort of element mixed with... Um, you know, Sanders or something. And it was, compared to the first one, it was a giant hit. The first one did fine, but the second one really took off uh, commercially and critically. And so, of course, I don't know if this is good, but it's really encouraged me. What I, I just handed in the third the third book, and 
I was sort of, you know, wringing my hands going, I wonder what, what are they going to say about this? Because it's, it, it goes a bit farther into the darkness than uh, the first two did. Uh, that's good news, though, to me. But, you know, I kind of have the same background as you do there. Um, but you did something remarkable there, and that is with Black Mountain, um, you made a second book and a series like this better than the first book. And that's really, really rare with that sort of thing. Well, I really, I'm humbly accept that and thank you. Um, I've been relieved because, you know, there's been a few people uh, who don't like the second one. That's how it goes compared to the yeah. first one. I also have, you know, something I'm struggling with, not really struggling, I guess that might be a little dramatic, but something that I'm dealing with is the whole you son of a bitch. I followed you as a horror writer all these years, and now you're a sellout sack of shit for writing crime. And I knew that was coming. And, and, and that's the more extreme. I, I mean, I have people who go to every message board to tell everybody not to read my stuff because it's crime now. They haven't even read my crime. They're just like, don't read it. You know, he was good when he wrote horror. And, you know, I knew that was probably coming. And so I'm kind of dealing with that. But... It, that that kind of reaction hasn't had any, you know, I, I, I try not to let anecdotal, you know, d data points influence what I do as a writer. I have to basically look at two things. One, what I want to do and the, and the bigger picture uh, as far as building my, you know, I, I want to say career, but just almost my portfolio, just like who am I as a writer? Uh, and then, of course, there's a the commercial aspect. You know, if I want to keep writing and not go back to work in Home Depot, you know, I have to at least write something sometime that is radio ready and so Coleridge was the radio ready that was my well I do a lot of acoustic uh, surrealist you know concept albums but I'm gonna have at least one song or maybe one album that you know will, will appeal to a broader audience and what's going on though with it is is that the more literary and more um, baroque and supernat supernaturally inflected second novel is more popular than the nuts and bolts stripped down pure crime first novel. So we'll see what happens with the third one. You know, the, the line that I'm trying to, that I'm trying to tiptoe across is uh, that it basically takes something like true detective, but actually has a little more backbone to it. In other words, it's not ha ha fuckers. This was all just, you know, a, a mind game. It never, there's, you know, I like to allude to Chambers, but, you know, Chambers has nothing to really do with any of this. Oh, no. The king, in, you know, I don't do deal with the king in yellow, but that concept of the idiot flautist at the center of the universe maybe is actually pulling our strings. You get to, you get to have that as an argument, at least, that is preserved in the second and third book. That, that's kind of the line that I'm at, where it's like, for the crime reader, I want you to have a line of reasoning sort of this axis of reasoning that goes through these books where you can say, no, uh, this, this psychedelic crazy shit that happened is because Coleridge had cracked his skull and it's very reasonable that he's, that he's hallucinating. Uh, and also there are weird things, naturalistic things occurring around us all the time that aren't necessarily supernatural, but they present as beyond our ability to understand from our perspective. Does it make them, does it make it about monsters or, or supernatural energies or anything. It just means that we only know what we know. And so the crime reader, the you know, the kind of the literal people can can hold on to that. And it's it's a Schrodinger's cat thing. 
it is true. And so in a, on a quantum level, that's true. But I also want my fans who like the children of old age, for example, to go, I know what you're really doing. And, and, and they can be to some degree, they can be correct as well. And it's, it's very, it's, it, it's, it's very challenging, but I, I have to say I'm really I've never been happier uh, or, or having more fun writing than when I'm writing these Coleridge books. I can see that. Go ahead, Rick. I was just going to say it's I can see that and as well. And going back to kind of everyone has their own opinion. But like how you said, people may be like, oh, you're a sellout crime writer now or whatever. <laughs> you know, I kind of. I kind of took the opposite approach. Like I said, I got into the Coleridge novels. Those were my first introduction. But how you said you maintain that line, I think it's a good thing because, too, maybe those crime readers, now that you're working those elements, it's almost like you're spreading, you know, that sort of genre stuff to them as well and you know who knows it might not be everybody but maybe some of those crime readers you know pick up your books and are like wow you know this is really interesting and i like these kind of weird elements and they either you know look up your older books or other books in that genre so i kind of took it a different way and I don't know if that was intentional, but I thought that that's one of the reasons why I loved them. And I thought they were so cool is that, you know, especially being at a major publisher, you know, it helps branch that out to other people who may not have just sought it out on their own. I hope so. Um, you know, because I don't I don't really have any interest in uh, writing urban fantasy. I have no problem with it, but that's not what I'm attempting to do now. There could be people who label it, especially with the third the third book. They may lab, you know, be inclined to label it as that. That's fine. I have never been one to resist labels. Uh, people because that's how people identify with your work. I, I may might disagree. I may say no, that's not what I'm doing. But I don't. I certainly don't um, begrudge anyone for, for for say, hey, Laird's a writing some urban fantasy. Okay, that's you know that's fine. But that's not what I feel. I do not feel that's what it is. And so for me. And it's really hard to articulate this um, coherently, but I just think there's a subtle difference between writing something, like say what what uh, my good friend Paul Tremblay does, where at the end you're like, okay, but is it supernatural or isn't it? Was there a demon or wasn't there? There's a difference between that. That's one. That is one kind of um, sort of Schrodinger's cat sort of writing style, and then there's another one where it's where both are actually possibly true. And then there's a third writing style where, no, we're in Jim Butcher territory, and yes, you know, there's a hidden world, and it has rules. I, I'm really working with, and I thought True Detective was really close to being in the middle of those two, was being the one where, well, it, there's a naturalistic explanation, but the universe is bigger and more mysterious than we know. And I think Pizzolatto or the show, you know, the, the, the committee that probably okays or... or or, or says nay, uh, kind of shot that in the ass with the, with the first season, you know, by kind of like, nope, everything's fine, and it's all, it's a guy in a lawnmower, and he's just, he's just a serial killer. I, I'm trying to do the thing where it's a step or two beyond that, where, oh, the guy in the lawnmower may just be a serial killer, and if you want to believe that's all he is, that's perfectly fine. You can actually, you can argue in front of your class that this is, here's all the evidence that this is all it is. But I also would like, the guy at the back of the class to go, no, 
that lawnmower is actually, it's not just a metaphor. If you were to pop the hood up, there's no engine in there. It's being run by the pulsing heart of darkness. And, it's driving, and he's driving around with it. And you go, you're the fool for thinking. Kind of the opposite of uh, Ambrose Spears, where he, he basically makes you a fool for believing that the guy didn't get hanged. He's telling you the guy's dying, and then you, then he tricks you into belief because of immersion, tricks you into believing that he's really alive and not just having, uh, you know, his life passing in front of his eyes. I'm kind no, of, doing the, I'm kind of doing the opposite. I'm kind of like trying to trick you into thinking that no, this is everything's cool. But it's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember what what was the name of that beer story. I loved that story, and I haven't read it since college. Oh, uh, I'll probably slaughter the title. Incident at Owl Creek Bridge, or uh, oh yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, I always it's one of those titles I always like. It's Owl Creek Bridge, or was it Owl Creek? But yeah, if they were hanging the guy, and then you know, it, and they've 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 analyzed that story, and basically maybe even Beer said something about it. I love Beer's. I would have to say he's somewhat of an influence on the tone, the like the, the sarcasm in in the stories, the dark the dark humor and stuff. Uh, you know. Either he or or someone analyzing it said, you know, shame on you for thinking that the guy got away and then you, you were snapped back to reality. He told you from the start what's going on. It was sort of like an exercise in, in uh, human behavior, you know, that how, how basically how our perceptions are 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 manipulated so easily and so predictably. And so Coleridge is just, you know, like I said, I'm really excited to see what happens with the third book. I I just I just finished it. Um, I finished it in a white heat about 10 days ago, and I, I sent it to my agent. He got out of committee with her, and now it's on the floor, and the editor is, you know, so far she said she loves it, so we'll see. So I, I, I can't say too much just because I don't want to – I kind of want to hype it a little, but, you know, there could also be changes made, so we'll see. But if it stands, it's definitely um, – well, you guys have read my – especially Shane, you read my stuff, you know. The, one of the villains, and it's Tom Mandibole. He's larger than life in the story, and uh, you know he was, as you, if you recall, the villain in uh, X's for Eyes. So yeah, or a villain. But you know he's he's been in several of my stories. He's um, he's kind of like a trickster, uh, Nyarlathotep kind of figure. And you know somebody might be asking themselves, well, how could that fit into a crime novel and not automatically be a horror novel? I'm like, well. As he presents himself through the novel, it's very naturalistic. But Coleridge definitely has problems on multiple levels with the guy. He doesn't quite understand how he is able to do the things he does. That that excites the hell out of me, you say, and that. It's like um, anybody who's read your horror just peed their pants when you said that. Because, <laughs> um, he, yeah, he's, he's a creepy-ass character. <laughs> well, he's, uh, you know, this, this just a quick rundown. You know, the first one is... Coleridge is a fish out of water, you know, breaks up a, a mass slaughter of walruses, which is based on a real thing that happened. Uh, and instead of getting murdered, you know, or executed by the mafia, because he's not, it never really was a member. He was sort of an affiliate. They just, you know, get out of here, go forth and sin no more. And so here he is in New York State, and he tries to go straight. And, uh, and you know, what's interesting about him, and I'm not sure in reality what, whether he could actually ever really get a detective's license or whatever, but I did some research on it. And Coleridge has absolutely no real record. He he uh, he was never basically he was never caught. He was not Sammy the Bull. He didn't he didn't commit a lot of crimes. He was simply somebody you sent in to, to whack somebody, and he never you know we don't know how many people he killed, but he didn't get caught for it. 
there's a lot of suspicion around him. The only thing he was ever uh, jailed for was roughing somebody up years ago. And so I did the research and one of the, you know, one of the bars in New York state becoming a detective has, have you had any recent mis, you know, physical violence, misdemeanors, or do you have any felonies on your record? Felony, you'll never get a, from what I was, you know, the study I did, you could never get a uh, license. But uh, if you have, especially 20 years old, if you have, because you punch somebody out, they're not, they can't do much about it. And so I just went with it. So he's a, you know, and he's not really the world's greatest detective either. He pretty much just sort of lumbers around and uses his instincts and shakes, shakes the trees a bit. But the second one, uh, you know, for everybody out there is that he, he runs, basically he's, uh, on the trail of a of a mafia, an old allegedly either dead or retired mafia hitman uh, who's fallen off the radar called the Croatoan, and unfortunately this guy is also uh, possibly a serial killer. So Coleridge deals with you know is dealing with that, and then the third one, um, and of course each one builds on the on the last. I want you to be able to read them, just jump in and read them. But I'm not sure, you know, I, at some point, I think it's going to be way easier just to, to, to read them from the start. But so far, you could you could still, even with the third one, I think you could still jump in. But uh, he's he's hired by um, a character who I based on, uh, a guy named Schilling, who was uh, Donald Trump's bodyguard for years, a police lieutenant turned bodyguard, major domo type, you know, procuring prostitutes, allegedly, for, for Trump over there in, in Russia and whatnot. Uh, and so I, I kind of I kind of took that character, and uh, so he's this sort of disgraced, discredited ex-cop, uh, and his former boss uh, became a you know C, a CEO of a huge corporation, you know has become a senator, and so kicked him to the curb like yeah you're a little you know you got you got too much baggage you can't have you you've thrown too many protesters over cars and things like that in front of the in front of the cameras. And so, so this guy hires Coleridge uh, because his nephew died at a super collider site that I invented in uh, western New York a few years beforehand. Insurance money was paid out. It was an accident. The guy fell down a shaft, you know. But as it turns out, there was really no investigation. It was just like they just shut it up because they were, there was so much money involved with the, with the project. And the guy's mother, this, this dude's this, this, uh, discredited police officer's sister, is like, just not satisfied with it, never has been. And uh, so this guy says, you know, fine, go, I'll pay you some money, go over there and look into it. And so Coleridge is over there traipsing around uh, the Valley of the Horses Heads, uh, which is, is sort of the colloquial, you know, old school name for the place. Uh, it's over there in Horseheads, New York, and, and uh, Elmira, uh, you know, south of Buffalo. Uh, and so he's over there, and things rapidly become darker and deeper and far worse than uh, he was, you know, anticipating. Yeah, that, that sounds great. I know with like each one, like, especially after I first read blood standard, when the second one came out, I think Shane and I both started it at the same time. I kind of just dropped everything and just, you know, blasted through it and i was gonna ask you about because i didn't know how much you wanted to talk about the third book but um i was gonna ask you about you know where about it was set at and to hear it was in Horseheads and elmira i've kind of been in that area a lot so i'm excited to check it out yeah well the the third book is called worse angels and kind of the opposite you know basically abraham lincoln was talking about we should listen to our better angels 
So it's sort of a play on that. But um, <laughs> the, the deal with it is, is that, um, you know, I did a, a bit of research about Elmira and um, horse heads and just corning and all those areas, you know, uh, in that region. And I should say towns and stuff. And one of the most fascinating, this wasn't, you know, planned. I just was, I was looking for an area where a super collider might be at least even fancifully might be an area that they could happen. And because initially I was going to actually have it happen in Texas. There is a, a defunct super collider project down in Texas that went on for many years. And I said, you know, that's such a great setting you know, for, for kind of like a, you know, somebody was killed or there was some kind of skullduggery involved with a, a real estate project. I think an abandoned super collider is, you know, it's up my alley anyway, that the whole super science aspect of it, uh, because it allows me to bring in. And so I said it in New York. I'm like, no, 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 let's just set it. And it's a group of rich, creepy families in conjunction with the government. We're trying to create this thing. And it, it, it fell apart about seven or eight years before the story takes place. Uh, and and then so I started doing research about horse heads and I found out why it's called horse heads. And I just started chuckling because it's it's the valley of the horses heads. And the reason it's called that is that General Sullivan, uh, there's a famous infamous chapter of, you know, essentially colonial or late colonial history where he was over there fighting the uh, Iroquois nations and our nation. And uh, he ended up slaughtering a butt as he was coming home triumphant. He slaughtered, I want to say, several thousand. The numbers kind of vary, but literally thousands of horses were in bad shape, at, probably from being starved, were in bad shape. And so he just slaughtered them right there on the edge of town. It was called Newton or Newtown back then. And there were just bodies everywhere, carcasses everywhere. And so the locals, the local tribes actually uh, picketed the roads with horse skulls. At least that's the that's the research I got out of it. And they called it the Valley of the Horses Heads. And I said, yeah, that's, uh, that'll do. <laughs> that will that will definitely do. So um, I said it there. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fictional, it's a, I, I even have a disclaimer because the, the work has gotten a little more horrific, um, darker, I should say. I've actually, you know, I'm going to have a disclaimer for my books, you know, here on out that not only are, references to people living and dead in you know kind of uh, fictional but yeah. so are how i use places um you know the the, the valley uh, you know uh, horse heads and the and and the valley are going to the, the chemin valley are going to be used in a fictional way uh, not necessarily true to uh, the reality well yeah you kind of I mean, with with any writing, really, when you take on a setting, you're taking on a kind of another character. Right. And so you got to kind of shape it to fit the story more than fitting the story to it. I mean, you wouldn't shape, you wouldn't fit a story to a character. You write the character, but um, the character fits the story. I, I will say this, though, in my defense, because it you're, because it's a creepy. It's a creepy setting. But I've had multiple people, because I've talked about publicly where I said it, and I've had multiple people. I was actually talking to uh, a fan of mine, a friend of mine, uh, who did survey work over there and was just like, oh, my God, let, you know, let me tell you all the, the scary stuff I saw while I was over there. And so I've been getting, I've been getting that feedback, you know, that this is, you know, that this is, uh, uh, you know, a pretty good place to set this kind of a, 
a story because there's militia groups, there's there's yeah. just a lot of oddity, you know, and of course the history itself is, um, you know, is what it is. But, you know, for my fans, so you know, for crime readers they're, they're, who are not familiar with anything but the Coleridge stories, it's just another Coleridge story. It's written very similarly to Black Mountain. It's, uh, you know, I think it's still stripped down, but it's it's a little denser than uh, Blood Standard. And it's, you know, it's Coleridge. Coleridge is, it's, it's the short chapters and it's constantly moving. There's always, you know, there's not a lot of digression. It's just a lot of things are happening. And uh, but for my horror fans and for my, my weird fiction fans, I really do think that it's, you know, assuming that it survives the editorial process intact, which I, I think it might, um, it's a weird fiction horror novel uh, in a lot of ways, as much as it is a crime novel. Um, and yeah, and but like you say, with all of them, you know, as a fan who's been reading your work virtually almost since the beginning, um, I could feel threads of your horror even in the very first book. You know, so and and it, that just ramped up, you know, tenfold in the second book, and it sounds like more so in the third book. But at the same time, I could see as I was reading those books that um, a Baron Luddite coming to your crime fiction would have no inkling that there was any thread of of that kind of darkness running through those stories. No, I right, and also how they've been um, pitched is to accentuate the just the either the thriller or the crime elements. Right. Uh, there was a, there was a little bit, a little bit in Black Mountain. Uh, I can't remember. Actually, I don't know who was responsible for the jacket copy on that. You know, I usually give them something, but ultimately, uh, you know, whatever the final result is, is that you know they 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 go over it and they add or subtract or whatever they do. Uh, they did mention you know something in that that the Croatoan may be more than a scene kind of a thing, but they still err on the side of, and I, and I, I applaud this. They err on the side of, you know, this is a crime novel or it's a mystery. It's a thriller. You know, it's not a, it's not a balls out horror novel, which even this one isn't, it's not, the balls are firmly uh, in the pants, but, but I'm just going to tell you, if you know my writing, you're going to be, you know, you're not going to have any, <laughs> any illusions about what's going on. And if you, you don't, you're just going to be, this is darker. It, it's it's less horrific because there's not a serial killer, but it's darker than uh, than Black Mountain in a lot of ways. You know, the, the, the whole sort of the, the weirder, darker, more threatening in, in an occult sort of way. Uh, and I, like I said, I, I really enjoyed writing it. Um, it's, you know, it was tough to write. It's the first thing I've written since my dog died. I know that's probably sounds silly to somebody who doesn't has never had a close relationship with a, with a, with a pet, like a really, you know, she was almost, I realized that my dog was sort of my therapy. It's my therapy dog as much as she was, you know, my, my companion because my life really changed, uh, has changed since I, I lost her. And, um, you know, it was, it was tough. I, I really didn't have, you know, I finished the last novel. I finished black mountain and then I went on tour and it took me a long time to actually get my, uh, and then my dog died, you know, kind of right at the end of the tour. And it really did. It took me until this spring, you know, about six or eight months before I really actually felt like a, like I had anything, any blood. I always felt like I had like a quart of blood low. It just was just constantly walking around, 
and just something in my life is missing, you know, and uh, I mean, I knew what it was, but it impacted, it was more than just, you know, oh, my, you know, my pet's here hanging out with me, I realized I had lost something a lot more than that, and so it was a relief, though, when uh, I kind of became less day-to-day grieving and more like, all right, this is sort of the background radiation, universal radiation noise, you know, it's, it's back there, uh, but it's not in my face, drowning out everything, and I was able to sit down and write Coleridge again. You know, Coleridge is, and Lionel and Meg and, you know, uh, Bellow, the FBI guy, it was just, and the villains, are just, like, they were waiting, like, come on, buddy, you know, let's let's forget about that stuff for now, and let's... Get back know, to us. Yeah, let's go to work. Let's go to work. Take take some of that stuff and put it in the story. And so, yeah, this is my this is my first real prolonged effort. I've written a handful of short stories, so that's not the same. The same. This is this is a concerted effort that required, uh, you know, a few months of around the clock attention. And you know, I I, I sit back and I look at it, and uh, you know, I, I can't wait for everybody. I can't wait for you guys to read it. I think it's. Uh, like we always want to think that the latest thing we've done is the best thing, but I, I really do think this might be where I learned how to write a novel, finally. Well, and that's kind of, um, I mean, not that you haven't already known how to write a novel, because uh, you fucking well did know how to write a novel prior to this. Um, but uh, like I, I've said a million times before people get tired of hearing, I'm sure, but every great writer that I've ever been a fan of gets better with every book and you're no exception to that rule every single book every single novel every single collection you improve on um you improve on your skills you improve on uh your background knowledge um i guess it's just you know called fucking getting old but um (laughs) you know there you start there's there was a lot of heart in your early works. Um, your later works, these newer works, are all heart. You know, so you can see where you you took that emotion and and applied it to um, the work at hand, so to speak. Oh, well, thank you so much. But I wanted to talk about that uh, that relationship again a little bit between um, horror and crime. Um. <clears throat> And how this how this relates. Uh, you wrote a piece for was it Crime Reads? I've yeah. got it down here. Yeah, Crime Reads called Horror and Crime or Kissing Cousins. And one particular part in that um, you said, because and you're talking about the thing we've already talked about about um, people wondering if you know did you quit horror and whatnot. Um, and you said this particular door I've opened isn't an exit; it's a portal to another chamber. Um, and the secret is crime, noir, and horror are all rooms in a sprawling mansion. <laughs> um, I'd like to, I'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit. Right. Um, I, it's, it's something that I kind of came to that conclusion organically. And before I go any further, you know, I, I want to acknowledge that off the top of my head, I'm not sure how much of this sort of process of thinking, of rationalizing the connections is owed to other people's hard work. 
like the minute we're off the show, I'll probably remember, oh, yeah, I read this one thing. So I just I want to toss that out there that this is not I honestly don't believe this is original thinking. I think it's probably a synthesis of things that smarter people than myself have said. But um, I just wish I could credit them right off the top of my head right now. But the bottom line is, over the years, I started John Langan would be actually somebody that I could that I could toss off as someone who who thinks about this stuff and very deeply. He's and brilliant. I remember, yeah, and I've I've audited his classes. You know, he he's teaching high school right now at a military academy, but he um, you know in the past has been an adjunct professor for many years for SUNY New Paltz, and so I have spoken for his class you know in front of his classes and commits with them, and uh, I've also audited which I think is actually the most valuable thing that I've done uh, is, is listen to him teach, you know, King Lear or something like that. Or just he taught he was actually teaching a, a literature and film class. And I, I remember we were watching Double Indemnity and then they're kind of comparing and contrasting the the Shining or the Double Indemnity, you know, with the with the with the source work, that kind of a class. And <clears throat> really have over the years have picked up a lot of stuff from him. And I remember I think consciously that's this is a few years ago, but I think consciously that might be one of the entry points for me into realizing just how intimately, uh, the you know, uh, especially crime and war and horror are are, are linked, intertwined. Um, it's because he was talking about uh, how, if you really look at it, double indemnity qualifies suits at least suits a lot of the qualifications of a horror. <laughs> Of a horror novel, and especially how the end—the end is so just sort of the delivery of the ending. It's different than the movie, obviously, and it's just this—it's—it's—it really is horror. It's actually almost pure incohate horror, uh, beamed into this, beamed into this, you know, melodramatic kind of almost potboiler, you know, plot. And so I started thinking about that, and I started looking at the people that I've really liked over the years, and I went and what I like about them, or what at least com- compels me. And I start going, oh, my God, there's a scene in The Lonely Silver Rain by McDonald where they're recounting a, a, a triple homicide, rape homicide on a, a yacht. And it's all told, you know, like, this is what happened. This is what we think happened. And it's just absolutely because John D. McDonald, you know, is, is kind of a button down writer a lot of the time, even when he's delving into really horrific stuff, which he does. But it just if you if you isolate that scene in a Travis McGee novel, you're like, this is horror. This is a Absolutely. scene that would be because of what happened. Like he killed the bad guy. There's like two women and a and a man, and I believe he raped one or both the women. It was all over this course of hours, and the way that he killed at least one of them was he took the money because you know it's always about money, right? Uh, he took these like rolls of bills and he suffocated one or more of them with the bills. And they died horribly and slowly. And I'm like, and he just said, you know, it's very dry. It's not sensationalized. You know, it's basically just sort of like clinical, how he describes what happened, uh, M.E. style. And um, I went, wait a minute, you know, you know, a, a Hannibal novel wouldn't be any more horrifying than this. And that's everybody agrees that's pretty much, you know, as much horror as anything else. And so you've got that example. Then you've got Jim Thompson doing yeah. what the fuck he does. Uh, read Pop 1280. Pop 1280. Or, oh, go ahead. Or the Killer Inside Me. Yeah, both of that, those. Absolutely, Killer Inside Me. Of course, is the iconic seminal, you know, 
the old, you know, the old, uh, you know, psychopath uh, with, with, with a badge thing. But 1280 is him exploring that again. Another psychopath, another badge. Uh, but almost from the point of view of absurdism, there's like this absurd element. Like there's a scene early on in Pop 1280 where, you know, this lawman goes to visit another lawman, and he and you know I, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like Don Knotts would have been the guy playing this protagonist because everybody just makes fun of him, and he plays the buffoon. And there's and I forget what he did, but the guy you know the guy's being very patronizing this older sheriff, and he he makes him bend over and he get, kicks him in the ass like twice, kicks him in the ass as hard as he can. He goes, there you go, that's your punishment, type of thing. And so the guy's, the guy's limping around, can barely walk. And he accepts, he's like, gosh, thanks. And he leaves. And the next, one of the very next scenes is he goes to this, um, like this little shack. Because, you know, this is set, I'm trying to remember if this is set during the Depression. I want to say it's Depression era. And he goes and he visits these kind of hobo, vagrant types that are living in a shack. And he, get, he, he provokes an argument with them and he murders them. And then just leaves. You know, he guns him down and just leaves. And it's like, it's just, he commits murders throughout the, the book. Uh, and then he's, he's gosh, huck, yuck, the rest of the time. Uh, his girlfriend thinks she's playing him, but he's really actually playing her. And not to ruin the ending, but there's this kind of Cormac McCarthy thing toward the end where you're like, wait a minute, who's this other character? Is this character even a human being? I'm not even sure if we're talking about this isn't an angel or something. Or at least that's, you know, there, there's some kind of supernatural component to this other character. Uh, or to the whole or to the whole overarching kind of plot that there's some kind of, you know, we're the puppets of gods type of thing. And so I look at all this, and those are just a couple examples. Um, of course, I grew up reading the Gothics, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the heroine's going around with her, you know, uh, candelabra in the dark of the night through the, through the haunted castle. And I just started realizing, you know, in mysteries, in thrillers, in, in war, definitely in crime. Crime is so brutal. You know, we, we focus on some real barbaric aspects of humanity that it just really isn't any different than your typical horror story. It's just that the, the because horror encompasses more than the supernatural, that horror is a spectrum. And so what I, what I kind of caught on to is that horror really is sort of this element it's almost like this trace radiation that sort of is in your food. It's in your water. Uh, it's in the air. And sometimes your Geiger counter goes off because there's a pocket of it. And that's what we call category horror. Your, your Geiger counter is going absolutely fucking crazy. But other times it's just sort of like you're in the middle of a Cormac McCarthy novel and the judge does something that a human being shouldn't be able to do. And that Geiger counter kicks over briefly. And then you're like trying to find it again. It won't go off again. You're like, Oh, whatever. Uh, I, I realize that that is all uh, that it's all intimately connected, and that it's something to to manipulate and to utilize as a as a as a writer. That you really have so much um, latitude to create a spectrum of effects uh, within the reader. That 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 you don't really you know that basically I am working in many you know multiple genres. Because there are so many niches within the within these three larger lar larger traditionally recognized genres. Right. What did you call them? The the uh, trinity of the visceral or something of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. I, have to, yeah, yeah, I got I it. I think so. I think so. 
<laughs> yeah, I just pulled it up in my notes here. That's what you said. That That's a perfect description of uh, that horror, crime, and noir trio. Well, just one last thought is that there are a couple what could be argued to be supernatural elements, you know, in the Coleridge series. But one, I, I think this goes back to, like, trying to articulate what I'm trying to do is I really... I'm kind of, and this is an old idea. This is just, it's, it's, it's just something that I'm uh, sort of acknowledging, uh, waking, you know, w- waking up to, is that the mystery that surrounds us all the time. That, that basically, if you're religious, that you are like, oh, it's the numinous, it's, it's, it's the hand of God, and if you're a spiritualist, it's like, no, it's, you know, it's the earth, the earth herself speaking to us, or if you're, uh, <laughs> if you're in the Star Wars universe, it's the, for- it's the, it's the force. But what I but, but there's this sort of um, congruence of, of inexplicable, the inexplicable that surrounds us all the time that isn't supernatural per se. It's more that it's, it's just beyond our, our frame of reference to be able to explain. And so when I talk about cosmic horror, I don't even really have to, you know, when you start talking about cosmic horror, you start talking about, oh, well, the, the horrifying entities that are out there that, you know, the old ones or whatever coming to get us or the aliens, you know, the whatever. I'm actually looking at it more like, no, we have black holes rampaging around eating each other. There are, you know, the idea that time travels at different rates of speed, depending on how close to an event horizon it is, that basically time doesn't, tra- that even on earth, time doesn't necessarily travel, that there's a, that there's some kind of a variance in how time progresses if you're at the top of Mount Everest or if you're underground, but there's like, there's a, there's a, there's some kind of a lag there uh, that if we didn't have um, the electromagnetic poles, essentially we would, or magnetic poles that we would basically all be killed due to the bombardment of gamma rays or what, you know, like, you know, uh, various, various cosmic rays would eventually wipe everything out. I think that's horrific enough. I, I think that's, and also just the fact that we don't understand how physics can be defied in certain instances. Uh, to me, that's all strange enough, weird enough, horrific enough, without necess- necessitating an extra threshold of, well, God's talking to you, or the old ones are talking, you know, are plotting. I-, I actually think just the naturally occurring forces that we do not have any control over, and in many cases, very, very minute understanding of is enough to make your blood run cold when you when you when you basically use it as background context for a guy investigating someone who fell down a shaft at a super collider uh, project um yeah and that's you know an important point you made there is that um calling something horror and calling it supernatural or really i mean it's kind of a misnomer because there's a lot of horror. I mean, if you think that horror requires supernatural, just go read a Jack Ketchum novel. Amen. Um, Amen. Yeah, he'll he'll scare the hell out of you, and you'll never see a single supernatural element in most of his stuff. Um, and you know, there there are plenty of examples of that. You know, or or the crime film, uh, The Night Comes for Us. You know, same same difference. Uh, I would argue that film is horror in spite of the fact that there's not a single uh, supernatural element in it. That's a great film. I just watched that yeah. a few months ago. 
Well, the only the only other thing I would say about that is I totally agree with that, like the categorization. Kind of the thing that I'm that I'm really wrestling with is it's just that there are things that occur that are mysterious and could easily be by a true believer, let's just say, could be categorized as supernatural that are just that aren't they aren't anything because we don't know what they are. And that's kind of the point that I'm making is just that there are people who have been shot and lost half their their brain and still walk around and they live. Uh, Phineas Gage, right? Got the real like. Okay, I did a bunch of research about him because that may actually come in handy. The point is, is that there are people who have disappeared. If you ever want to freak yourself out, I don't have the guy's name in front of me, but it's the I want to say it's the 411 files about the guy who has uh, done a lot of documentation about all the people gone missing at who've gone missing at state parks over the years. Um, you know, I don't know how much is apocryphal, how much is, is you know kind of cryptozoology kind of stuff that he's doing. But it's creepy because a lot of those are cases that I went online and looked at and said, yep, his conclusions you can argue about, but the fact that these people are missing is an absolute, you know, this is true. And, and the circumstances were mysterious. And so I look at this and go, there are mass disappearances throughout history. There are people that exhibit superhuman by our, you know, by, by typical standards, superhuman abilities. Um, there are just plenty of things going on that defy, that are aberrational, I guess is a good word, that... I don't have to rely on uh, what we would call traditional, you know, genre weirdness or horror. In other words, like, well, this is a ghost story. This is a zombie story. Here are the rules. I'm actually dealing with something that in some ways is really exciting to me because the rules that Coleridge is, the stuff that he's running into, they don't, it even defies the rules of a typical uh, horror, you know, supernatural horror genre story or or, or or, um, non-supernatural that it basically, life is stranger even than fiction. Is a, is a, it, there's some some real truth to that cliche. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Rich. I was just going to say, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't aware of the 411 files thing you mentioned, but I'll have to look that up. But I used to, and I still kind of do, like all kinds of different sites out there especially on reddit i can lose myself in there for hours but like you said there's there's all kinds of different subreddits where you know it's just weird stuff that you can't explain whether it be people's disappearances or you know weird stuff that happened to them but even just interactions with each other like there's just so much weird stuff out there that you can't necessarily explain but that doesn't mean that like you said they're supernatural you just may not fully understand either how it works or what happened so there's that kind of ambiguity there yeah absolutely and so it's a it's not that it's new it's just another facet of of writing genre that I can incorporate, and uh, you know, I and obviously I can't go as far with it as I want to because a it's it's I'm not writing I'm not setting out to write supernatural horror novels uh, in the guise of crime. I'm trying to basically do this thing where they're they're kissing but they're not going to get into a committed relationship maybe <laughs> and um, maybe it's a one night stand you know but uh, yeah. but but also you know it's just that um, i i have written because it is in my universe this you know people have asked me from the start is this the same universe and i said well there's a, there's two maybe three universes that i'm playing with but yeah coleridge exists in the universe of old leech of course he does 
it's just that how many people are ever going to run into the cult of old leech i would say you're pretty safe uh unless it's the end times you're pretty safe you'll go through your life and not even know it exists so so the fact that he exists within that universe isn't really relevant isn't really pertinent uh generally speaking but yeah it, it does inflect how far i can go because it, into this idea that there are no rules because a lot of my stories operate within what I would consider, even though they're weird, they, they operate within a traditional kind of framework. We don't know what the rules are, but there are, you know, you know you're in a supernatural horror story. I mean, that's the, that's the very problem with, with writing this kind of stuff, is the label gives the game away a lot of the time. If you're reading best crime fiction of the year, you know somebody's going to get shot. You know, somebody's going to get robbed. Somebody's going to double-cross somebody. If it's a Western, somebody's riding a horse and wearing a hat, I'm pretty sure, at some point in that story. Same thing with horror. No matter how you jive, you are going to disguise it. If it's in an Ellen Dallow anthology and it's called, you know, Year's Best Horror, or it's ten horror stories of crime, you know, related to crime, you know that at some point the horror is going to come out. So I am. this is one fun thing, though, about writing these Coleridge novels is I get to inject the horror because they're not labeled. Same thing, and I think, you know, well, Harris, you know, it's got to be fun for him over the years. They don't label his novels horror novels. They just say this is a thriller, and then he gets to do crazy, crazy stuff in it. And the, the fun part about it is, is that somebody who doesn't know your history just picks it up and reads it as a crime novel, and they get exposed to stuff they wouldn't normally. You know, they get a chance to be surprised by stuff that I do. Horror readers don't get a chance to be surprised by me as much. Uh, but a crime reader will at this point. But at the same time, even ho- even horror readers um, with the, with the Coleridge, Coleridge novels, you don't n- ever know when those elements are coming. That's true. So yeah. so they do to that degree take you by surprise a bit. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think at least I can only really speak for myself, but I'm sure Shane would maybe agree is one of the reasons why like that's one of the things when we started this site like those were kind of the two genres that we really liked and the way they mesh together is because like it is kind of surprising and how you said you could kind of use horror and you could use horror pretty much in any type of story but it's just the way that it kind of fits into that framework it kind of like you said it kind of surprises you well, you guys, this is what you do. I mean, you have Ink Heist, and uh, I mean, so you, you guys are very educated on crime, noir, thriller, to whatever extent you, you like thrillers. But I mean, that's really the, the bedrock of, of kind of your guys' identity as, uh, as Ink Heist, uh, at Ink Heist, I should say. Uh, is so, so you would be in a good position to judge, you know, how horror fits. In. You know, from, from that viewpoint. You would be uh, in a good position to say, well, you know, what you think about that. I just, you know, I only come at it just from, you know, I, I was an avid reader when I was a kid. I'm less avid now because of all of my, as far as pleasure, because a lot of the reading I do is research oriented or, or reading other people's manuscripts or whatever. It's more, unfortunately, it's more analytical than it used to be. But I, you know, I just know what I like and you know, when we talk about writing programs and, and, and all that, I think everybody has to do what's what's right for them. But and I think there's value in doing uh, <clears throat> pursuing whatever your course is. 
whether you're like me and you basically just learned how to write by a kerosene, you know, lantern when you're a kid, or whether you, you know, you have an Iowa Writers Workshop pedigree, uh, I think the end results are just the end results. You got there how you got there. But for me, I was always dismantling works subconsciously, and then I consciously started dismantling them to analyze them later. And I think that's been, you know, it, it's helpful in the sense of I intuitively am able to create. I understand pacing intuitively, but I think it's another thing to try to explain this. So in other words, I haven't really had any urge to write a how-to, a how-to book. If I ever write something like that, it would probably be more just like, here's some shit that happened to me over my life, and you know, this is how this is how it all turned out. And take make of it what you will. I can't really imagine, uh, unless it was framed in that way. I can't really imagine writing a a Stephen King manual, you know, or even Stephen King kind of did it that way too, I guess. So I guess I, I can't really, I don't know if I could ever really articulate my experiences in a, a chapter by chapter. This is how you write a thriller. This is how you write a horror novel because so much of it for me is intuitive. And so I'm always fascinated to talk to people and go, well, what do you, like you guys, I mean, what do you think? How does, how do you think horror fits in? Uh, you know, uh, why is it so, you know, if it is, if it is, so such a, a, a kind of a PB and J kind of a situation, you know, why do you think it is? Uh, I think uh, um, one of the main, re- the main things that stands out for me always is that um, darkness bleeds through both genres, you know, um, really through. Uh, and I mean, noir is by its very nature dark. Absolutely. But but there's a but there's a thread of darkness and brutality that and and that. Um, what uh, Stephen King says: every horror novel requires that that sense of dread, that heavy foreboding, um, that carries across those genres, you know, uh, virtually seamlessly. Yes. Yeah, I tend to agree with Shane, and I we kind of talked about it a little bit, but it's one of those things too that's kind of hard to put into words. Like Shane said, like for me, it's like the grittiness and like they just combined so well for pretty much the exact same reason. But it's one of those things where you're so close to it and like you kind of have this sense of why it works so well together, but it's really hard to put into words. <laughs> well, the, the one thing that I, I can't remember if I talked about that in the essay, but um, I must have, but I think one thing that uh, crime noir and uh, horror have in common is transgression, the idea of transgression. Thriller, you know, any, any genre can have transgression. Romance can, can deal with, I mean, pretty much like horror can be in anything, or, or you can pretty much mix almost any genre, but just taken like at their root core, their identity, their DNA, uh, I really feel like transgression is a motive force to some degree in all three genres. In horror, it's the Judeo-Christian axis of you did something you 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 took some not take something but like say you you fucked somebody you shouldn't have you insulted you insulted the old Romani lady you know you uh, you were out in the woods and you disturbed a you disturbed a, a a burial ground oh or you read the wrong book you weren't supposed to be seeking that kind of knowledge which is very which is very hardcore Christian you know seek no knowledge outside of the good book and so you have this moralistic sort of sort of through line through, I would say, a lot of category horror. And obviously there's there's um, exceptions to this, but 
you're going to find a, a very heavily moralized uh, sense of transgression, you know, what that means through a lot of, at least, contemporary, you know, modern, uh, old school through maybe the 2000s. I think people are starting to try to come up with, you know, by shifting over to weird to where the horror doesn't derive from, from you. It derives from this reality uh, deforming around you. But, but pure horror has often and maybe always been about transgression. I mean, you've got Frankenstein, which is Prometheus. How dare you presume to uh, wield the power of the gods? I mean, that was Prometheus's big sin. Uh, and all the way up to uh, even the Ketchum novel. The Ketchum does different things or did different things. You know, there, there's the transgression of, 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 of civilized behavior. The, the, basically, the mask of sanity breaking down. Uh, and crime is, you know, think about, and, and crime, of course, is, is interesting because it's almost amoral because there's this idea that there's transgression, but it's, it's a lot of times you, you have characters who aren't even good or bad. They just are. They're out doing this amoral stuff. They're trying to survive. Uh, and so the transgression is, am I going to get away with the bank robbery? And so you'll have, like, part of the story is following the cops and you're sympathetic to the cops chasing the bank robbers, but yet... You zoom in on the bank robbers, and a lot of times they'll be, if not sympathetic, you empathize with their plight. And so there's this, once again, it's this whole transgression thing that there's a balance that has been disrupted, and uh, the forces of, of order will come along and, and set it right. And then noir is the, I think noir is like the bastard child of both of them, because noir, you could have a hero in it that you root for, it could be a good guy, but there's this sense of, you were fucked from the start. Like in crime, you didn't have to go rob that bank. I guess you could argue that in some crime stories, there's a sense of providence, like, well, he was poor, what was he going to do? But you you had to pick up the gun, you had to plot out the crime a lot of the time and go do this. Um, at least that's a very popular type of crime. War could be, you could have just, it's very much like horror, you might have just like had a black cat run across your path and now the universe is aligned against you. And there's a sense of just doomed inevitability to noir. Um, and so, so it's, but usually you did something, whether you knew it or not, you unknowingly transgressed. And so for me, that was like a very, it doesn't fit everything, but it's, it's a pretty, for me, it's a pretty compelling way to look at and categorize kind of like, uh, how these things, you know, how these genres fit together. What, what is the, what is a, what is a sinew that causes the, you know, the arms to lift and the legs to churn and the mouth to bite? What, what, what's called? You know, what is it that's causing this? And I think there's a, you know, there's some kind of a nervous system or, or you know, a network of sinew and, and muscle that is the transgression uh, component. Um, yeah, and I think that's a good that's a good way to articulate it too. Um, especially, I mean, that sense of transgression in in all three of those genres, and in, and in a lot of genres really, but those more than any other. Um, but when when I think of noir, noir is really kind of universal in a way. Um, but yeah, that that's the inevitable is definitely a heavy element there. It's kind of like um, you've got this uh, amorality that almost always runs through that type of fiction, and the things that happen seem like uh, they were predestined to happen a lot of the time. That's how it feels, yeah. And yeah. in some ways, it's worse than pure horror because horror is usually like, if you hadn't gone to the pet cemetery like we told you not to and buried your damn <laughs> kid there, 
everything would be okay, but you decided yeah. to do it. You did it. You did it despite all warnings. Crime, pretty similar. You know, I know you have a rough life, but nobody told you to go to the bank and stick it up. Nobody told you to keep all that money from that plane crash. You, Society has told you to go turn it in. Did Good you? story. Right? And then everything falls apart. Nor you're just kind of screwed at the whim, and sometimes you're just screwed by the whim of the universe. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good, the way you articulated that, like, I never really thought about it like that, but it definitely makes sense to me. And uh, I know earlier we were speaking, um, and you said, you know, you were a big music fan. I didn't know if you wrote to music or if you were silent, but I was just kind of curious what kind of music you were into, because Shane and I recently put together, like, this huge playlist that we've been sharing back and forth and sharing with people that read the site and it's been interesting because you know i've introduced a ton of stuff to shane and vice versa stuff that i might not have listened to on my own so i was just curious you know what sort of things you like to listen to and if you like wrote to music or not love music um i'll get to the writing part but i grew up on um old school country music which is fundamentally then people still may not who don't like you know that genre may still hate it but it it is extremely uh different than than contemporary country music um so i grew up with you know like hank williams and johnny cash and uh that kind of stuff and a lot of it on vinyl and so that really you know i i don't know if that really had a big influence on my writing uh, marty robbins did you know he wrote like the, you know, some of the gun, the gunslinger type knowledge, you know, El Paso and and stuff like that. But um, Big Iron, and so I think that had a little bit of an influence. And then you know, when I got much older, of course, I became rebellious and I, I started listening to rock and roll. And I so I love classic, classic rock, rock from the '80s, because you know that was my my teen years was the '80s, and so I'm listening to stuff that was big back then. And um, these days. It's, it's kind of a mix of everything. I don't really listen to country music anymore. I, I, like I'll, I'll listen to artists, you know, from my, from my, from my youth. You know, I'll listen to Johnny Cash occasionally or, or Marty Robbins or something. But generally speaking, uh, I, like, I like rock and various forms of rock music. I like some instrumental stuff. And when I'm writing, it depends on what I'm writing. Like I'm kind of creating a playlist for the, the new Coleridge novel that I might actually share online at some point. Like a, like a sort of like a, a song for each, like a theme song for each character, major character in the story, maybe. But I, uh, it depends on what I'm writing. When I listen to Coleridge, I actually like to listen to a lot of uh, stuff that kind of has a noir edge to it. And I also listen to, uh, there's a, I want to say he's Welsh, um, ambient music uh, creator called Les Mord. Uh, and I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Most of his stuff is, I don't know how to describe it. It's, uh, it could definitely be soundtrack kind of music, but it's just it's terrifying. He takes uh, like the sound of uh, cattle lowing, and he mixes that mixes, mixes that with like Viking horns and and just you, the sound of metal clashing and all this stuff. And I find that that actually uh, puts me in a, especially if I'm writing something uh, you know violent or or hair raising in a Coleridge in a Coleridge story. I find that it's um, uh, pretty inspiring i wrote actually lives of darkness to less word so 
which is kind of a it, it's kind of an inversion of one of his uh, titles for one of his one of his songs. So I've listened to some uh, some Lust Mord. Um, I think the one that comes to mind I think is called Dark Star. Yep. Yep. Um, what what I'm mostly familiar with 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 that stuff is is his work on films like The Crow and you know right right uh, there's another guy that reminds me of him although he's a lot more accessible you know a lot more I guess I won't say top forty but closer to that kind of you know uh, commercial is uh, Daniel Pemberton he did the soundtrack for um, the King Arthur movie the one with uh, Charlie Hunnam. I was like, holy crap! Some of the some of the pieces are just just beautiful. But he also did a song called "Take You Down," uh, which was which was in the theme track uh, for "Man from Uncle" and recently uh, uh, "The Boys." And I've really been listening to him. He's he's just he's absolutely fabulous, and it puts me in a good mood to uh, to write. I, I would say I, I listen to music about half the time when I'm writing. There are times though where I just shut everything down and I just need to be completely you know i don't need to have any outside influence I, I need to focus on this and i have to admit it's probably when i'm editing i don't listen to music as much when i'm creating i don't mind having essentially the muse muses singing to me uh but when i'm editing i need there to be a little more quiet i envy people who can listen to music at all and do anything because <laughs> i'm a i guess it's because i'm a musician but if if music is playing music owns me no matter what I'm doing, it's all yeah. over if you turn the radio on, you know. <laughs> I've gotten yeah. a lot of good ideas for stories from listening to music, I'll say that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, um, like, I think that's some reason why sometimes when we ask this question in the past, like, a lot of writers will say they do, but they try not to have anything with lyrics because then it'll kind of seep in there. But then there's been um, there was a collection that Grey Matter Press put out called Savage Beasts, where it kind of went in the opposite direction, where they use those stories as influences, and you could kind of see where they got it from, but not it wasn't necessarily like the same, I guess, themes as the music. It was just kind of inspired by that vibe, which I thought was really interesting. That sounds interesting. I need to look at I need to look at that. Uh, yeah, it's great. Well, I, you know, I understand what Shane's saying, because that's, that's actually slightly different even than what I'm, you know, I, I love music, but I don't get possessed by it very often. Uh, I'm not a musician. I'm actually deaf in one ear, and so music, it's, it's actually, I don't get the full effect of for music anymore like I used to, which is pretty sad. But um, I, I actually, when it comes to music and when it comes to other, other writers, for example, I do worry, you know, like every writer does, I think every musician does, where if you repeat something that you've internalized and you think it's your own. I've had that happen a few times. I'll have a phrase. I have a couple of phrases and stories. I'm like, oh, my God, now I know where I got that. And you just go, well, whatever. You just move on. So that's a legitimate worry. But I think it would be a worry no matter what you did. What are you going to do, lock, lock yourself in a bubble and not partake of pop culture? Well, you won't be much of a writer if you do. What? But there's one thing that writers tend to worry about that I do not. I am the... I'm the opposite. I'm from the I'm from the uh, ecstasy of influence school, so I am quite happy. Like I never want to like recreate somebody else's work. For example, that's not my what I'm getting at. But I love being able to say, Hey, John D. McDonald, his Travis McGee stuff is an inspiration on Coleridge. 
Because here's the thing, you can't create without having, everything you do is in response, whether you want to or not, is, is in response to stuff you read. Even, I love it when people say, oh, I hate that other author, I would never write. I'm like, well, the fact you hate him doesn't have anything to do with whether you write in a similar way. Like, they were talking about Thomas Ligotti doesn't like yeah. Aikman. And I, because I was saying, hey, Aikman and Ligotti have some similarities. And I, I mean that in a good way. And I got, oh boy, I've never had so many tomatoes thrown at me as when I said that. <laughs> and, uh, he didn't read him and blah, blah, blah. And then later on, I read the interview going, yeah, he reads him. He hates He just hates him, which is perfectly legitimate. And so he's not an influence on me. I'm like, ah, contraire, Tom. He was an influence on you. You get influenced by things that you hate uh, just as much as things you love. Marketing. Maybe more so, yeah. Right. Yeah. Marketing Marketing has proven that, that actually there's really not much difference as far as, um, you know, drilling it into your head, brand, identity, stuff like that. You, this, the stuff that drives you crazy, you remember it. And that's all they care about. So the, bo- the bottom line is, is that he probably consciously does dislike Aikman's. He said basically Aikman's absurd or something like that. Sure, but I bet you that if he were to do a, a fair assessment of his writing, you go, oh crap, here's where. Yep, there's the Aikman sneaking in. And I'm from the opposite school. I'm like everybody I that I admire and love, and including some people who I whom I don't. I'm I'm still like, hey, these guys are in my they're in there, whether in my head, whether I like it or not. My, to, to me, my uh, uh, job as a writer isn't to, to recreate the wheel or to invent stuff out of whole cloth. It's to tell a story uh, and to paint pictures. And I use every tool in my toolbox. When I'm looking at describing characters, I look at Roger Zelazny and say, this is how Roger did it. Roger took three elements from a character, and that's what you got. He was a large man with dark hair. He limped toward me. That's all you get. And you. And if the character is important, later on when he punches out the hero, he'll go, oh, yeah, his fists have been broken many times. I think I hope my head broke it for the, this last time. And then maybe later on he dresses in green. And maybe later on you find out that he was also, you know, had a beer, a beer belly. But, but only if the book goes on. But you know what that character looks like. He glared at me and he limped toward a large man with dark hair limped toward me. He made a, you know, making a fist. You, that's, that's it. And so I, I look at him and go, that's what Zelazny gave me. He gave me everything, the universe and a teaspoon. There you go. It's, it's distilled. When I look at uh, trying to figure out how to get a character out of a room, out of a, a, a busy party and, go, and out on the street, I look at Peter Straub and go, or T.D. Klein, either one of them, and go, all right, how do you guys handle 40 characters and at least five of them have something to say on 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 the stage? And then how do you get this the protagonist out of the room? And also, how is it a week later, but we're still in the same chapter? I look at Peter Shroud, uh, and so on and so forth. I'm up in the mountains, uh, and I'm trying to describe a, a scene in the mountains. Hey, uh, Cormac, what was your take on this? Hey, Louis Lemoore, what was the horse like, you know? I, I, that's what I so I don't care if uh, if that stuff seeps in, uh, you know, and, and informs what I do. And I I kind of feel that way about music. The only reason that I don't listen to music as much when I'm editing is just because it's a different it's a different process. I'm trying to find mistakes. Uh, You're yeah. out of out of creative mode and in, into analytical mode. Right, and I don't need, I, you know. Uh, it's it, for me the actually the editing process is pretty creative but it's just so bound up with trying to pick up all the pieces of glass you spilled out of the garbage on the way to the garbage can on the floor 
you know, I can't be holding a, a philosophical conversation while I'm crawling around looking for the glass. I need to just make sure that I get it all picked up. And so I, I have a tendency to, to kind of look at it as uh, a different part of my brain uh, is functioning. Probably not, <laughs> obviously not as strong a part as the creative side. No, but strong enough to get the job done. That's right. With fewer distractions, though. <laughs> Um, yeah, I can't. That's a. I can't do anything with any distractions. It's just a, a hang up of mine. But uh, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, Laird. So I was just kind of curious too. It's interesting, like as far as films and stuff. Like sometimes people assume like if you write horror crime then obviously those are the only sorts of films that you watch what is a genre of film that you enjoy that people might not expect you to like and what are you know some of your favorite films from that genre oh wonderful i love i love i love uh music video games and movies are are things that uh same here (laughs) pictures of pictures of kittens you know, I, I actually I subscribe to the Dodo on Twitter because it just makes me happy. I do, too. I see a video of a beagle playing a piano while a kid's destroying the living room. I'm just like, that. you know, that's just what I need sometimes. And I think it does surprise people, you know, because my writing has a tendency to be very brutal. That oh, I must, you know, maybe I'm watching Ultimate Fighting Clips. Uh, but I have a time and place for that, too. But, no, I, I like to listen to things that are quite different from what I'm known to write and it, it's the same thing with music it's the same thing with with almost everything uh i do enjoy my genre i love to read horror but i have to and watch horror but i gotta tell you i watch and read far less horror and always have compared to everything else that i enjoy um the most horror i ever read to be honest uh was when i was you know judging for the shirley's or just being a juror serving as a juror for the shirley's because you know everything that I received was in that you know, horror, uh, thriller, dark, psychological kind of spectrum. Uh, it's stuff that I, films that I like, obviously, you know, uh, I like a lot of the dark stuff, but I think it might surprise people to know that I enjoy um, comedies. Uh, and I also, <laughs> I'll out myself here, I like a good musical, to be honest. It drives my girlfriend crazy because she's not a big musical. I will actually, maybe what drives her crazy is I reenact the musical sometimes, but <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, uh, hey! No, no, uh, no shame there. Like, I'll be honest. People probably wouldn't expect this from me, and I feel no shame. But I watch more rom coms than I'm probably should admit on air. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I here's my thing. I won't cop to, re- to watching a lot of them because it. I feel like that's taking. Like, in other words, I'm taking ownership of. Uh, oh yeah, I know rom-coms, but I like a rom-com. Matter yeah. of fact, in, in the past, there have been times where I am um, have been just utterly depressed and uh, just put on a rom-com, and uh, or even just a plain romance, and just be like, "This is what I need right now." Uh, not even a comedy. Comedy is almost requires too much uh, participation. You laugh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, there are times where just something, you know, these people are overcoming their problems, whatever. But and some of them, you know, like I said, it's it's not a genre that's my number one genre, but I I I try to I don't know, I feel like I owe it to myself to be as open to it without necessarily being a fan, but to be open to stuff that isn't 
isn't necessarily my favorite thing. In other words, I'm not, you know, uh, a romance writer and not much of a romance reader, but I have read Storm Constantine. I've read Collins. I have read um, Harold Robbins. I have read uh, Barbara Cartland. And I have read a shitload of Harlequin uh, silhouettes back when I was younger. I, I mean, did, my too. Mom, my mom had stacks. I know that... It, here's the thing. I'm no expert, right? But I can, can talk a good game. I could argue a good game about, well, you've got your teen romances, and then you've got your you know, Sweet Valley High romance. I guess that's kind of the same thing. Then you've got your historical romances, You've got your bodice rippers. I mean, you've got there's all these different categories just from when I was growing up. Oh, these are going to have a sex scene every 20 pages. And it's going to be graphic. These will have no sex scenes, et cetera, and so forth. I mean, I, you know, uh, and the bottom line is it goes right back to commercial fiction in general. People like to poo-poo it. And there is a lot of garbage, but there's a lot of garbage in every fucking genre. That's right. The yeah. People who know what they're doing, a good writer is a good writer. And that's that's. I guess that's probably sort of a corny thing to say, but I, maybe it needs to be said. A good artist is a good artist. I think that's even a bigger thing. You know, so many people mock, like say Justin Bieber, for example, or Nickelback or whatever. I, you know what? I don't know enough about, especially about Bieber, to really say anything educated. But I think you could never go wrong by saying, uh, it might be better than you think. It just may not be your bag. Well, and if he wasn't good at what he was doing, he wouldn't be a fucking millionaire. Well, that's well. The, the thing is, there are a lot of bad examples uh, in the field, right? Whatever the field is, there are bad examples and people who make money who may actually be bad, but objectively. But all I'm kind of getting at is just that I really do think a lot of times you're you're better served by at least before you just write something off saying, well, maybe that's just not for me, but I should I should at least check it out for posterity type of thing. And so that's why that's what I kind of try to do is that, you know, there's stuff that I don't that I watch that I don't necessarily um, love, but I will occasionally watch it just because I think it's not even a matter of like I should. It's just more like I owe it to myself to, to, to basically have that in the memory bank. But yeah, uh, musicals are the a pro, musicals and the occasional rom-com or maybe I I think that'd be the only thing that would really surprise people because a lot of the stuff that I, and I love documentaries, but I don't know whether that would be a surprise or not, but I watch every freaking documentary and almost every subject that I get my hands on. That doesn't surprise me at all really about you. Um, cause you've got this freaky fucking intelligence going on that just, you know, scares the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have that, you know, there are things that if, like you say, it's important to follow your curiosity sometimes and just step outside of your comfort zone, you know? Like, that's how I found my favorite film of all time was stepping out of my comfort zone and watching a movie that I thought I'd hate with my sister and ended up fucking loving the hell out of, you know? What movie? Uh, the Perks of Being a Wallflower. Okay, yep. But not favorite film of all time, but one of my favorite films, and I couldn't really articulate why. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's kind of what uh, Laird said is, you know, sometimes you do it more for yourself. But I think, and too, how you said, you know, a good writer's a good writer, and I'm sure that applies to different mediums as well. And that's kind of, 
I agree with that because if you check out something like Shane said, you might not have thought you liked that, but if you didn't at least check it out, you might have missed out on something that, you know, had a profound impact on you or something. Absolutely. That's how I got into and I think it may be a better writer by far in the long run, how I got into documentaries. I didn't especially foreign language documentaries, uh, you know, foreign films in general, is I didn't really I mean, I was raised, it was a very strange way I was raised. In some ways, uh, you know, I was exposed to, 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 you know, a lot of different ideas through the books. But I think that was more incidental. My parents were just really, my mom was really religious and hidebound uh, fundamentalist. And my dad was hidebound in the sense that he was sort of a, you know, I won't say white supremacist, but definitely, you know, extraordinarily racist, bigoted, and isolationist. And, um, you know, my mom, of course, if it's not in the Bible, oh, I don't know, even though she, she had a natural interest in, in books, she just kind of came to, she came to fundamentalism, you know, like in her late 20s. And so it was early 30s, I guess. And so she had all the books and all the stuff and she couldn't bear to throw them all away. So she, she got rid of a lot of her, a lot of stuff after she, after she converted. And so they weren't really, you know, they just had these ideas. And I, I feel very fortunate to kind of survived all that and kind of become my own person. But, um, you know, I just, I just look, I just look at the, you know, the, the, the stuff that I was, uh, exposed to as a kid and just go, ah, I, I moved to Seattle and I just didn't, it was just such culture shock. I moved out of the boonies and directly into one of the biggest, most, I shouldn't say biggest, but one of the more cosmopolitan cities in, in the United States, uh, you know, face, you know, tattoos and, 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 and piercings and, polyamorous uh, relationships and uh, homosexuality. And this is stuff that was not uh, obvious in Alaska at all at that time. Uh, uh, more, uh, wow, there's other people besides white people. Wow. And so I'm exposed to all this stuff. Uh, and I realized just how, I just realized how fucked up my childhood was in that moment. You know, I'm 25 years old. I'm aware of all this stuff but like on a distant intellectual level. I mean, Alaska back in, when I left, there were, you know, uh, other other ethnicities. There's obviously people uh, living their lives. We, we knew uh, lesbian couples and stuff, but it was just everything when I was growing up was like, as long as you don't say anything and you, you don't you don't get in the way, then I guess you can, we'll tolerate you. That was kind of the, sort of like the, how, how it was done. There were kind very, of yeah, very few black people. Uh, and then, you know, everybody kind of was, if there, if there was a black community, it was a black community somewhere. When the Russians started moving in, they had a Russian community. And so I, and then top it all off with a, with a set of parents that are like, you know, we're the best, this is the best. It was a massive uh, obstacle uh, to, to being a writer and just to being a good person, uh, you know, hopefully a good person. And so I, I moved to Seattle and I'm, I'm now I'm you know, culture shock and, Luckily, and to my credit, instead of you know having a problem with it, I basically came to terms within a very short period of time that you don't know anything. Now I didn't know, I didn't realize how little I knew even then. But I was like, you don't know anything. This is you've been not to say lied to, but you have been living in a fucking bubble essentially. And it really was. We were out in the woods, man. And I, you know, and so what happened is I started mixing with other people besides my peer group I'd grown up with and it's people, you know, different cultures, different ethnicities, different uh, 
sexual persuasions, you know, just people. That, that was the thing. And one of the first things that happened is uh, I met people who liked foreign films, for example. And dubbing, are you crazy? Dubbing ruins everything. You need to have subtitles. And so I got into uh, you know, the foreign film thing, and I was addicted. I had a girlfriend, became my wife later on, working at a theater, and she could get us in for basically nothing. So we watched literally in that three years we were there, hundreds of, of films I never would have, at least, at least well over 100 films I never would have watched if left to my own devices. And, you know, uh, I look back on that and go, thank, you know, the powers whatever's up there you know I, I i count myself as really really lucky that everything kind of fell fell together that way rich and i are both really heavy heavy into foreign films too um yeah. and i and i'm a snob when it comes to dubbing it's kind of like if you're if you're you if you're using overdubs you're not really experiencing the original art but, no that's um, absolutely right to, to get away from my uh, digression, there, um, you could have you could have been a really different person based just on your upbringing. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not trying to throw throw them under the bus. My my no. mom my my mom actually I feel a little bit bad for because um, you know sh- she was raised very parochial and very patriarchal situation dad's a railroad guy mom you know whatever the man says is 100 percent you know dust dust full uh, upbringing for her mom basically and so and highly religious uh and even though my mom wasn't religious when i was born it was still a an ideology that had permeated her and my dad takes her out in the woods when i was nine years old and isolates her from everybody i mean we you could not get to our place without jumping in a riverboat or taking a plane in the wintertime, uh, you'd have to hook up dogs or take a snowmobile. But we were hours, several hours from the nearest town. And we didn't even have a neighbor within 20 miles for the first few years. So we were, you know, we were absolutely isolated. And uh, I don't have much to say in defense of my dad, just that he was raised similarly and uh, had some really bad experiences in Vietnam. And I don't think, you know, looked at the world in a, in a very coherent way. But I... Whatever the reason, that's how I was raised. I was raised, you know, and I, I, I feel like I have to kind of come to grips with it, uh, not sugarcoated. I was raised in what we would consider a very bigoted and uh, at least lowercase racist household. And that was sort of the, just to be perfectly honest, as far as I'm concerned, that was sort of the nature of Alaska by and large in the 80s. Uh, it, obviously, it, it has changed since then. From what I can tell, it's really changed. And I, I, I credit my my aunt. I have an aunt who, I remember I was 12, 13. I was like running my mouth about something. And we, we had come in town to visit. And we were staying with her. And she set me straight. She, she's the one that started setting me straight. And it was essentially just like, you know, your parents don't know everything, son. Let's, you know. And, she, and she, she's just this wonderful person who, through kind of warmth, she didn't argue and say your parents are idiots. She just was like, hey, you know, there's always another story. And she started explaining things to me. And uh, it stuck with me over the years. And so I give her a lot of credit for not, you know, uh, <clears throat> turning out some different way. Uh, you know, I, I, I would really, you know, I'd be sad if I were living in a shack up in Alaska with the views that my parents had. I just, 
I think that's we already have enough people that do that. It didn't, you know, I feel like I kind of uh, escaped escaped that fate. Um, fortunately for all of us, because you're one of our most important artists, I think right now, both in crime and horror. Um, and like I say, you could have been a largely different person, like you say, had you had you not expanded and branched out and moved out into the world and experienced. Well, it's it's you know, I guess it's kind of heavy stuff, but I I don't know. I think it's important to at least say it. I, Absolutely. I have always. This is, I mean, this is a function of, of a Christian upbringing, right? And a, and a conservative, you know, my family was was like hardline Republican, uh, uh, po- po- you know, politically. But I got to tell you, you know, I, I have and I have to this day very strong feelings about crime and punishment. I just I feel like uh, predatory criminals should be punished. But I I have softened on it in general because I look back at myself and go. Where you, you know, there's an old rap song, Where You End Up, has a lot to do with where you start. And, you know, while I don't necessarily feel like I'm in a position to forgive people who commit violent crimes, it's not my place to forgive them, I do realize that uh, I have a lot of work to do on myself in regard to, like, my attitude about crime and punishment, because it's just so easy to, to discount people and dispose of them. And then you, you know, not separate it's kind of the situation where you don't separate the act from the actor. In other words, it's quite possible to say, look, you know, you have to be punished for this transgression. What we really need is a society to, to look at why it happened. And I, and I feel like uh, that's something that I need to work on. I think, every, I think a lot of us do is that it'd be hypocritical for me to be just that you, 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 you do something wrong and you're, you know, doomed for life. When the reality of it is, in a lot of cases, that could have been you. That could have been, you know, that could have been me if uh, if my aunt hadn't stepped in and said, hey, hey, you're being led down the wrong road. Uh, you know, my life could have turned out differently. And so I I feel like uh, a lot of people are in a really bad situation and then bad things derive from that. And once again, it's cliche, right? It seems like it should be obvious, but I, I think that we lose sight of the fact that we really need to be working on um, ourselves, but we also just need to be working on acknowledging that how how we go about business as a society when they're you know just in general creates uh, a lot of the problems that we have that it's not all just magical that people aren't just necessarily uh, by and large just evil and out to out to just you know be asocial or antisocial that they're that they're in some cases uh, there's a there's a sense of desperation and I think we need to be more you know people have been trying to tell us that for years but I I think more, more and more of us need to be cognizant of it. I'm hoping, despite the current political climate, I'm, I'm hoping that in, in general, as a as a civilization on the planet, that we're getting more and more sort of self-aware that you know, like, hey, maybe this what we've taken for granted all this time uh, isn't such a great thing just because we've been doing it for so long. I remember I, I wrote a paper about tradition, and I said just because you know, tradition just it's just a word for saying something we've done. We've always done it this way. It's it's not a it's not a value judgment. And yet, how often have you heard tradition used as anything other than woohoo, the traditional way of doing it? Uh, you know, and I think we have some pretty bad traditions, and I think we, I think we, I think we need to work on them. And I think one tiny little thing writers can do uh, is just be, is try to be fair in their writing and not be, 
you know, basically uh, be a little less judgmental in the writing and let and maybe let people come to their own conclusions and say, you know, uh, there are two stories or two sides of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. And um, I I I've seen a lot of that starting to pop up in, you know, various different genres and stuff. So I'm kind of hoping that that similar mindset, you know, continues to grow. I think I'm so. I think horror is, horror is a better place than it. Listen, I weird fiction and horror have a long ways to go. I, I would not want to be, you know, I can see, I can see plenty of minority groups going, Hey, it's got, it's got work, but I see a huge difference in representation, for example, uh, yeah. now compared to five years ago. And I just hope that, that, it, you know, diversity, representation, compassion, because I'm not talking about whether we're writing brutal stuff or that bad things happen but that we're more self-aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, I think a, it makes us all better writers, but it also just creates a better, just everything's just, just the world's a better place when uh, we're like, ah, that's not, a, you know, that what we thought was funny. That's not really funny. You know, calling people that, or this phrase that we use, you know, or never having any, anybody besides a certain set of characters represented in a story uh, is just, you know, it's just oppressive in, in, in a very in a, in a overt way, but also in a subconscious way. That's like, you know, it's, it's becoming unacceptable. And I'm glad I'm glad to see it. And I, I know there's a pendulum and I know there's extremism, but I think it's for the good that we're drifting uh, in a more humanitarian direction as far as how we how inclusive being inclusive. Yeah. And over time, that's been a an issue like you say it's getting a lot better now and, and it makes me happy to see it but i mean there were, were times even as someone who lived through the booms of the 70s and 80s and early 90s to some degree um there were there was some diversity but not much it was it was mostly a white male party you know, with some exce- exceptions, Abyss was a good exception. They published some really, really hot female writers and and uh, LGBTQ writers. And... Yeah, it's a it's a slow drift, and like I said, I I'm not even remotely trying to promote the idea that yay we're there. I just no. I just feel like people are conscious of it. And I know it's painful, and and I like I said, I think there's extremes. I think there's I think there's uh, some, some tough stuff that's happening, but overall, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's trending in the right way. And I just hope, you know, I hope it continues, but I, you know, uh, I'm, I'm definitely cognizant of my place and my role and everything. And, uh, I just try to do, you know, if, if the problem is, is, you know, as a, as an author or an entertainer, you're, you gotta be careful about how many hats you're trying to wear and what you're trying to do. And, uh, I feel like you can overdo it. I feel like there's a patronizing element sometimes, especially as a white male writer, you know, trying to be, uh, you know, you come off as patronizing. And I, and so my, my tack has always just been just to represent people. You know, when I wrote Mysterium Tremendum with the two gay couples, I tried to do something that I, as a straight uh, white male writer, have not, was not familiar with. And that's horror uh, treating 
you know, uh, gay characters is other than the enemy of some or, or victims. But yeah, of course, everybody bad things happen to him, but that's a Laird Barron story. The point was that they, the, the fact that they were gay was not um, the point of the story. They were people. They happened to be gay. And I, I ran it by uh, a couple industry, you know, uh, professionals to see what they thought of it, you know, personally. And, uh, and that's a small sample size, but the point is, is, you know, I just like, hey, am I on the right track? And it was, you know, they were happy with it. But that's kind of been my, rep- Coleridge even, Coleridge doesn't, I don't purport Coleridge to be some kind of uh, authentic Maori experience. Matter of fact, he, he talks about himself as, you know, very much, uh, you know, because uh, he, he's, you know, he's, he's mixed ethnic or mixed race. He very much talks about, well, I was raised white, essentially, and I'm living in America, which is, you know, very, very lily white culture, uh, a lot of it. And and so I don't try to have him be something that he isn't and that I'm not. I try to I try to I try to come at him in a way that uh, I think is more authentic. You know, it's authentic and it's also, you know, not patronizing. But, you know, it's one of the problems with the or one of the challenges of being a, a writer is that you are never going to get it. You're never going to get it right. That's just that's just the bottom line. You're never going to be 100 percent right. And you're not ever going to be uh, immunizing yourself from criticism. And I think you're a fool if you try to. And I think you're disingenuous if you try to. I think the best thing you can do is just do the best you can and accept the criticism and praise when it comes your way and always try to try to do better. Um, yeah, yeah. See, this last time that. Rich was talking uh, when there's that long pause. I was cussing at him for interrupting me, but I was talking without my fucking microphone on. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh-oh. So I would just jump in there. I haven't done that in a long time, but every now and then, stupid-ass Shane turns his mic off. <laughs> and Did you get go that, ahead. Shane? No, I was just going to say, did you end up asking what you were going to say? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. <laughs> I was just I was just laughing about it. Um, but uh, we're uh, we've we've had this uh, young gentleman on the phone for over two hours now. Um, so I'm thinking we're gonna probably w- wrap this up for now, Laird, if that works for you. Really. And uh, and um hope that uh you will come back and talk to us again very soon like uh you know shortly before or after worse angels comes that sounds like a plan um i have a few few uh questions and i'll pass it to rich and see if he has any and then we will let you head on your way but i have these fanboy questions to ask Absolutely. And I know there are a lot. Of, I know there are a lot of Baron fans and Coleridge fans that are wondering the same things. Um, Jessica Mace, Isaiah Coleridge, ever going to grace the same pages? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and uh, Lionel, are you going to do anything else with him beyond the Coleridge novels? Do you think? Well, that would presume that he, he survives them, but um, <laughs> I, I, if he survives, uh, I plan to write a novel about from his perspective. Awesome. Um, I think that that was it for me. Uh, Rich? 
Oh, no. The main question that I had was the same one you did about Lionel. And now I'm kind of nervous that he's that Laird phrased it that way if he survives. <laughs> well, it's a question of who will survive. You know, we know that Coleridge will survive, at least until the last one. Uh, but secondary, you know, and I'm not a I certainly I don't I don't uh, I'm not interested in turning it to Game of Thrones. So who, who do we kill off? But no one's necessarily safe. It, 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 uh, bad things, bad things could, could happen. It goes back to Schrodinger's cat. I, I actually have a plot line where Lionel's bad things happen to him, and then I have a plot line where worse things happen to him. So I'm, we'll just see which, we'll see which universe he, uh, you know, which universe he ends up uh, inhabiting. Um, yeah, and that's, I mean, with all good fiction, whether it's horror or crime or even, you know, freaking romance, um, uh, if you're not willing to kill your dar- darlings every now and then, then you might as well do something besides tell stories. I, I absolutely agree, and there's even one, you know, further kind of addendum to that. I feel like, especially in a series, you know, you kind of have to. <clears throat> there's limits to what you can do compared to a, can do compared to a regular novel, but I feel like there are more than there are so many things to take away from a character or things to do to a character that don't involve death, because if you read enough. Thomas Ligotti or Cormac McCarthy, death is just like, oh, that's it. <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of there are plenty of things that are worse than that. So uh, I don't feel compelled that that's that's one of my cards, but I don't feel compelled to have to kill characters off to make you feel pretty sad about what happened to them. Yeah, because there is that's a good point, especially like you mentioned McCarthy. Um, he can do things to characters that make you sorry for that character that they didn't just fucking die. Absolutely. And yeah. yeah, I mean, there's always, there, there's more than a, there's more than a person or a character's life at stake. There's, you know, like I said, man, I, I, we all, you know, we enjoy rom-coms to some degree. A lot of fiction that we enjoy does not necessarily fall within the horror or drama categories. And yet the stakes are so high. Is she going to marry him? You know, there's, there's, or is he going to win the, is he going to win that uh, prize? You know, is, are they going to win the game? I mean, the stakes do not have to be life or death. There are plenty of other stakes. And yeah. generally, that's the stakes. The ones that really matter, actually, a lot of the time are, you know, what do you do with your life and what happens to you along the way? We all going to die. And it's kind of like, like it makes me think of coming of age stories, really. The, the stakes aren't so much, are these characters going to live or die, but just... Um, the whole the whole coming of age concept itself what's at stake is the whole forming of what who whatever kids you happen to be having come of age you know and absolutely and so that's how i look at you know i haven't killed any of the major characters in the coward series and uh i just i haven't felt the need to i felt i have felt no there's all these other things happening that it could happen that should always be a threat because death is with us but to me, that doesn't have to be the stakes, that your main character, you know, because that is a criticism. Oh, well, we know this person isn't going to die. I said, yeah, but you don't know, you don't know what, what they love is going to survive, what they love is going to survive intact. And to me, what people love and what they value and their, and their own sort of soul, uh, what happens to it is, is as important as whether they expire or not. Right, right. I mean, if it were important, we wouldn't have read every single Travis McGee novel or Happen Leonard novel. Or oh, there's a good one. Yeah, 
because I mean, because you, like you say, you know those guys are going to survive. Right. It's the, so it's, what, it's what happens to them that is uh, along the way that you're interested in. Exactly. Exactly. So well, anyway, see, I I can go on and on and on all night long with you, um, and uh, someday we'll get together and drink and do just that. Uh, For sure. Well, I'll, I'll drink anyway. I don't know if you drink, but I do. <laughs> Oh yeah, but, more more and more. <laughs> yeah, as we get older. <laughs> um, but yeah, we will let you go and talk to you again super super soon. I hope. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. All right, man, have thank a good you. night.